should open your New Testaments to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be there in a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Again, it's a joy to be with everyone this morning and to be able to worship our God together. It is, I know, the highlight of our week, and it is certainly a foretaste of what we have looked forward to for eternity when we're with the Lord together. I hope that this lesson will be a benefit to you this morning, that we can learn much about what the Lord would have for us to be according to His will. appreciate so much the Scripture reading to prepare our minds for that particular thought. Beginning in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4, we'll just read it again very quickly. The Apostle Paul, in a context of his ministry, as we'll notice, he says, It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. If you think about verse 6, it is an incredible truth that is revealed that the one who created in the beginning that allowed light to shine out of darkness. He said, let there be light and there was so. And some have even suggested that this is in reference to what we read of in Isaiah 9 when the land that had to deal with great darkness of Zebulun and Naphtali has seen a great light. Regardless of what it is, it's impressive that in the beginning God created light. And when the Messiah came, a dark world of sin, as we just sang about as well, was given a great and tremendous amount of light. And the Apostle Paul gets to play a part in that great plan for men who are in the darkness of sin to now see the light of God, the one whom no man has seen, in the face of Christ as he presents the message. I would suggest to you, though, at least speaking for myself, that verse 7 is even more impressive than that. Because it speaks of that great and glorious practice, that great and glorious treasure, and where God has determined to place it. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. This implies very imperative truths for us. Not just about the gospel and about God's plan to save man, but about our part that we play in it. I understand that the Apostle Paul is speaking of himself and the other apostles and the part that they had to play in the grand scheme of things. But it obviously would include us in a secondary way as well. There are various questions that come to our mind, especially as we think about 2 Corinthians 4 and in verse 7. What, what is the blueprint of God to save man by His gospel? I know that the gospel is the blueprint, but even when there is a plan, when there is an instrument of salvation, whether that be some instrument in surgery that will save someone or greatly improve their life, or some message like we're talking about today, that has to be utilized, that has to be put into effect, and the instrument has to be wielded in some way. How, what was God's blueprint for that? How important is this gospel message? You know, it seems... Sometimes when you're talking, especially to those in the world, about the gospel, about the New Testament, about the message of the cross, there seems to be a disconnect between 
understanding the importance of that message and thinking that there's actually something more in addition to it. How important is this gospel message? Or is there something extra beyond the gospel message that is more real for us? And this is just kind of the stage. How should our estimation of the gospel cause us to act? He calls it a treasure. How should that cause him to act? How did it? And how should it cause us to act? Do we have any responsibility in regard to this wonderful thing? It says that God is the one that commanded light to shine out of darkness. Even in the apostolic ministry and on to today, God is the one that's commanding light to shine out of the darkness in the face of Christ. Do we have any responsibility apart to play in this, though? And I think it impresses us as well about what God's plan was to make sure that all glory goes to Him. When it comes down to His message being effective and men and women actually being saved from their multitude of sins and actually seeing heaven, how is it that God determined to bring that about to maintain the glory going to Him? Let us look first in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7 and consider the treasure that the Apostle Paul said that he has. What is that treasure? I know we've already indicated to this degree, but think about that for a moment. You think about your discussions you've had with members of denominations, with members of those churches that do not belong to Christ. They may think that the treasure Paul's speaking about that he has in earthen vessels is a direct operation of the Holy Spirit. Maybe Paul is talking about his miraculous power as an apostle of the Lord. Some would seem to believe that a treasure that we possess in our earthen vessels as they preach the gospel of health and wealth is of monetary value, a physical thing. Maybe some think that uh, the treasure that he speaks about is, is gifted speech. We know that that really can't be the case, especially you go to chapter 10. And you see the advances of his opponents and them suggesting his speech is contemptible. Some might think he's speaking of good health. That's certainly not the case in chapter 4. The treasure that God puts in earthen vessels has nothing to do with any of these things. What is Paul referring to? I want us to notice in chapter 2, in verse 14, speaking of this same ministry, he speaks about diffusing the fragrance of is Christ's knowledge in every place. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he speaks of not peddling the word of God as others do, but speaking, implied, the word of God in the sight of God and in Christ. In verse 3 of chapter 3, he speaks about the ministry of the apostles, his minister, ministry, ministering something, writing an epistle of Christ, and it's ministered by the Spirit of the living God. In chapter 3 and verse 12, he speaks about speaking with boldness. He's speaking by the Spirit of God with boldness. A message that has to do with the Spirit, verse 17, which speaks of liberty. And in verse 18, of transformation into the same glory. We get to chapter 4 and in verse 1, and he speaks about this ministry again. It's that same ministry by the Spirit that began in chapter 3 where liberty is, verse 17 of chapter 3, and transformation is. And he goes on in verse 2 to speak about the word of truth, about the manifestation of the truth, the word of God. And notice in verse 3, he says this, 
but, and using some language that he drew on in chapter 3, giving some parallels, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. But we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves as uh, ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. The great treasure he's speaking of is the gospel message. He's not speaking of any other physical thing. He's not speaking of any talent that he has. And brethren, he's not speaking of miraculous power. What blows him away, the great treasure that he is privileged to possess and utilize in the earthen vessel that is his body is the gospel. But I want to impress you furthermore with while you have Paul using this kind of vivid emotional language, speaking about how much he values God's word. He says in verse 3 that some don't want it. The gospel, the good news is what it means, is veiled because the God of this age has blinded these people. There are other things more valuable to them than the gospel. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 15, speaking of the two-sided results of the gospel anywhere it is spoken, Paul says that he is the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. But I want us to notice what he says in verse 16. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and the other the aroma of life leading to life. That is the great message that we have smelled, that we have heard, that we have seen and appreciated with our eyes, where all our hope is found and where all our joy is seated, they think it's terrible. It is an aroma of death to them. It kind of goes along with what we discussed in the first hour this morning. How the same rock, the same stone could either be, for those who accepted him, a cornerstone on which the greatest edifice ever known could be built, them being a part of that, a living stone in that building. Or it could simply be what grinds them to powder, their destruction. It is either the aroma of life or to some the aroma of death. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 23, Paul says it this way, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but... To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I want to ask you a question. Do you value the gospel like Paul did? Would you call it a treasure? Would you think of the gospel, the message of salvation, like Paul thinks about it, evidently, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians and verse 7? But really think about that for a moment. The gospel is this entire message from Matthew to Revelation. In recent studies, we've talked about this. I think that it was spoken of and pointed out several times in the study on 1 Corinthians. Especially in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, when he speaks about the gospel as being that which pertains to the death of Jesus according to the Scriptures. 
the burial of Jesus according to the Scriptures and the resurrection of Jesus according to the Scripture. This is the gospel he preached to them. But is that the whole gospel? No, it's what the whole gospel surrounds. That is the fact upon which this message rests and makes it valid. The gospel has things to do with morality and doctrine. The gospel has everything to do with what we read about the church in the New Testament. The gospel is about how you're supposed to live free from sin now and consider yourself dead to that past life. The gospel requires us to restrict ourselves in certain areas. The gospel requires us to make great sacrifices. The gospel requires us to have difficult and uncomfortable conversations with others in the world and with people we know and love and hold very dearly closely to our heart. Do you treasure that message? Paul does. Paul sees it as a tremendous value in his life. The Word of God should be valued as such for us. In Psalm 19 and verse 10, the psalmist said this after speaking of the law of the Lord and the various synonyms there, and based on its efficacy. This is why he says in verse 10, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. He's not saying that just because it's some fanciful thing. He's not saying that just because it's some dream dream that he's had about some wonderful flowery thing. But this is an efficacious message. It will change your life completely based on how effective it is and the fact that it is authored of God and therefore reveals the God of the universe. It is more to be desired than gold in the honeycomb. Do we view it in this way? We should. The Apostle Paul says, that it's a treasure that he has in an earthen vessel. And you'll want to know how we can be sure that Paul valued it in that way. You see it in the way he lived. So that's the challenge we need to give ourselves this morning. Yes, you value the gospel message. I don't know that there's a soul here today that would say otherwise. Yes, we value the gospel message. But you know, we can talk about valuing a lot of things. I can talk about how I value my good health, but if I'm eating junk food all the time and never exercising whatsoever and my health is declining and declining and declining, I'm showing by my action that I really don't value my health. I value my family, but if I'm not spending time with my family, if I'm not making sacrifices for my wife and my children, if I'm not serving them the way God calls me to serve them, And that's showing value. And and instead, I'm sitting on the couch all the time like a bump on the log. I'm being of no use. I'm, I'm, I'm allowing them to go into poverty, into want, into bad health. I'm not helping them at all. I'm showing I really don't value my family. If you say you value the gospel, your actions will show that you value the gospel. And that's what Paul says. This this treasure we have in earthen vessels And so he goes on and says what happens to him in his ministry in verse 8. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. He continues. 
since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, which is why he can see value in it, because he believes it. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you for all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. He is willing to go through not just immense persecution, but just in the midst of going to places to preach the gospel and be persecuted for preaching the gospel. There's just everyday hardship that is along the way. But he knows he's bearing an immense treasure, the gospel of Christ. He's willing to die daily for the Lord because that's how much he values the gospel. He's willing to risk everything because he believes in the message that he is sent to preach. And so believing, he speaks. He has confidence in his value. His confidence in his value is because of the confidence in how effective it is. The fact that life is working in others while death in him. But even then, life is working in himself as he's being transformed by the gospel. He believes it. And it holds value above everything else in his life. And he showed it by the way he lived. Our conduct must correspond to the value that we're exhorted to have and to hold in the gospel message. It's said many times, actions speak louder than words. And while the gospel is very clear about its value, and Jesus makes it very certain about how we should value it, and how it should mean more than anything to us, He also puts it forth in practical language that we should understand So when push comes to shove, we can put our money where our mouth is and actually show we value the truth. This is what he says in Matthew 13 and verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. You know, there was a man that literally came to this requirement by the Lord in Matthew, the 19th chapter, and in other places, in the other Gospels, where he was a rich man, he was a spiritually minded man, and he asked Christ, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What do I lack? And he said, sell all that you have. He was put in a literal rendering of this passage. If you value eternal life, you know my word can get you there, then follow my word. And literally what I'm requiring you to do is sell everything and go hold on to that pearl of great price. Buy the field with the treasure buried and hidden in it. But I want us to understand that it's likely not ever going to happen to us in that regard. So we do ourselves a disservice, I think, in reading a a parable, uh, an imagery, like in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, That says if we really value it, it'll be like selling all that we have to buy one field because the treasure is in it. Selling all that we had to to get one pearl of great price. Just one pearl, but it's of great price to us. We need to start breaking it down into more practical things. Are we willing to give up anything and everything for the gospel? We value it that much. What about religious affiliation? 
There's so many people that claim they love the gospel, and then when they see that what they had believed in times past is actually of man and it is not the gospel, they're not willing to give it up. They don't love the gospel very much. What about tradition? The things that we may value but aren't found in Scripture, they're not inherently wrong, but we're not willing to give them up because we like what we're doing and we're going to continue doing it. What about your place? It it could be a job that you hold that is causing you to miss services, that is causing you to sacrifice time for the Lord and is certainly not showing you value the gospel. Are you willing to give that up? What about family and money and fame and time? Comfort, you name it. It doesn't have to be sell all you have, give to the poor, follow me, sell all you have, buy that field, buy that pearl. That's really not realistic to us sometimes. There are so many other things that we're called to forsake, to follow Christ, if we really value the gospel as a treasure. Above everything else. You know, there's a lot of people who like to act as if they could make the ultimate sacrifice if it came down to it at the end of their life. I would lay my life down for the Lord, kind of mimicking Peter. If it really came to that, I know I'm struggling here, there, and there, but if it came down to it, if I were told some, if I was told to give my life for the Lord and I would be in heaven, I'd be able to do it. But they're not being able to make all these little sacrifices. That's where it starts. We need to value the gospel. But he says that it's a treasure we have in earthen vessels. What does he mean by this? A vessel is just a container. And earthen means it's of the earth. It's temporal. It's corruptible. It's weak. It's inglorious. We see time and again in the New Testament and other places, vessel being used in description of the human body. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, Peter speaks of the wife as the weaker vessel, the weaker body, the weaker vessel in a few different ways there. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 3, Paul is calling them to sanctification, abstaining from sexual immorality. And the way you do that is you know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification of the honor and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles. If you're going to live a sanctified life of holiness and sexual purity, you've got to be willing to control your body, control your urges, is what he's saying. Possess your vessel in sanctification and in honor. And Paul says we hold this treasure, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. It's no wonder he says that. In Acts the ninth chapter, remember Ananias is called by the Lord to go to Saul. And he talks about how he's a persecutor of the church and I've heard about what he's done. And he says to go there anyway, saying in verse 11, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. He objects, he wonders why, and notice in verse 15, he says, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Tying right into that context, suffering in an earthen vessel, possessing the great treasure of the glorious gospel. It's impressive to me that God's plan was to take His invaluable message and give it into the possession of fallible, weak, and glorious man. But there's a reason for that. The way that God would retain all glory, all credit, 
that everyone would hear that message and praise Him is because it is possessed in earthen vessels. There's no glory to the man. There's nothing to write home about concerning the one who is preaching or teaching. The treasure is the focus. And it can be the focus because there is nothing in the vessel worth even talking about. You know, that's what impresses me in this regard. You would think in man's wisdom that if you had something incredibly valuable, you would choose something else that is fitting that value to protect it, to possess it, to secure it and to store it. All the time you you have a thought of having a valuable and you're going to pay a lot of money to place it in a fortress for people to protect it and for it to be be contained until you want to see it again. You buy an expensive safe for your valuables, but that's not what God did. He took His treasure and placed it in earthen vessels. And I think the reason in part that He did that is what it does is it manifests its own efficacy. If I can preach a message, if you can tell someone about a message, speak some words to someone lost in sin that will beyond a shadow of a doubt save them if they submit to it. Me, of all people, that tells me the message is powerful. And this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. He doesn't say that Jeremiah or Harry or the three elders or anyone else thoroughly equips you for every good work. He says the Scripture does. We're just instruments, earthen vessels, nothing to boast about. But also I want to impress you with the fact that he doesn't say, I've got this gospel, this, this inspired message that will save you, but there needs to be something else added to the mix for the salvation of man. You've got to have a miraculous operation on your heart. You've got to see the most incredible things that defy the laws of nature with your own eyes in order to be saved. This message is great, but I need a little bit more. Or maybe not just by a man preaching the message to you, that man being one who's eventually going to return to the dust of the earth, though the eternal message lives forever, but maybe I need an angel to give you that message. Maybe I need Jesus Himself to come and give you that message, but that's not how He did it. He put the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul says it this way, Since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In Romans 10 and verse 13, this is what he meant by that. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You call on the name of the Lord by obeying His word. How then shall they call on Him and whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? That's God's design. To place the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels. And you see it time and time again throughout Scripture. In Acts the ninth chapter, in verse 6, Jesus Himself appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul then at that time. 
and Saul said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I think we would have all asked that question. Jesus is standing before you, just like with the rich young ruler. And I'm going to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Jesus did not give him the answer directly concerning what he needed to do for salvation. He said, go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I'm sending a man to you by the name of Ananias. He'll tell you what you need to do. And that's when Ananias in Acts 22.16 said, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. Did Jesus know that part of his doctrine? Yeah. Would it have been more effective for Jesus to tell Saul that truth? We may think so, but Jesus sent a man. In Acts 8 and verse 26, it says, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road, uh, the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And overtake the eunuch's chariot. The angel didn't say, You sit here, I'm going to go get him. I'm going to go teach him the message. The angel sent a man. And in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 35, that's exactly what happened. After he was reading from Isaiah the prophet, Philip opened his mouth, beginning at that scripture, and preached Jesus to him. In the 10th chapter, we read of a man by the name of Cornelius who was a godly man. He was one who was offering up alms, and he was praying to God, and he was a very religious individual, even held in high respect among the Jews. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, he said, what is it, Lord? He said, your prayers and alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He will tell you, verse 6, what you must do. Why didn't the angel tell him? It's not God's plan. This amazing, powerful, eternal, glorious treasure of a message is good in and of itself. And any man can proclaim it if they simply submit to its whole truth to the degree of another one hearing it and being saved. And brethren, that's me and you. We're entrusted with this stewardship. We need to realize its value and realize our place in it and have the confidence to do what God has called us to do. Used to, God communicated through angels and and through prophets and in dreams and in visions in various ways and at various times. But in these last times, He's spoken to us by His Son, Hebrews 1 and verse 2. In John 9 and verse 5, Jesus explains with this language, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6? He commanded light to shine out of darkness and has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He says, I am the light of the world. And as long as I am the light of the world, I need to do my work. He goes on in chapter 12 at the end of his ministry to warn these people about taking advantage of the light. A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. He's about to not be around anymore. Take advantage of his presence at this time. He's not in the flesh any longer in 2 Corinthians 5 and in verse 16. But his light still shines, chapter 4 and in verse 6. How does it happen? Certainly through the apostolic ministry, but just like Jesus left and left the apostles with that responsibility, the apostles died in Christ through them and their message left us with the responsibility. Yes, Jesus is the light of the world, but notice in Matthew 5 and verse 14, Jesus said to disciples, you are the light of the world. 
city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so he gave his marching orders in chapter 28 of Matthew in verse 18, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We need to do something with it, brethren. That's the whole reason God entrusted it to us. We don't get to possess it for ourselves and keep it for ourselves. That's where the parable ends with its application. You buy that field, you give all that you have, you buy it, you possess it for yourself. You have that pearl of great, great price. That's where the figure stops. Because what God wants us to do is to take the treasure to others. We have this treasure in earthen vessels to share to the world. But when we do that, while we're to possess the confidence that God has commissioned us with that great task and that He is with us always, even to the end of the age, amen, is what Jesus said in the Great Commission, we need to retain an understanding of our place in its entirety. We have this treasure, Paul says in verse 7, in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not us. Oh, that someone would do well to realize that. It is not about us. It is not about bringing glory or attention to us. It has nothing to do with our abilities, about our knowledge or wisdom, our ability to reason. It has everything to do with the power of the gospel. The efficacy of the God-authored gospel in the hands of weak and fallible men, it will bring glory to God. In Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, he says that we, we don't know the way to walk. It's not in man to walk to direct his own steps. And the reason for it is in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, the apostle explains, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for us, those who love him. In Romans 11 and verse 33, Paul rejoices toward the end of that section. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Matthew 19 and verse 26, after telling the rich young ruler what to do, but he went away sorrowful, Jesus said, with men this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. And so the gospel being brought to someone in an earthen vessel ensures that the glory goes to God. We don't need to get in the way of that. So Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 and in verse 17, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. He says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians in verse 27, that the way that God designed this was with purpose. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. We need to walk worthy of this gospel of Christ, which is a great treasure in our earthen vessel, our body. We need to do everything to the glory of God. We need to avoid getting in the way of this being accomplished. 
Paul lists some things there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's got this treasure in earthen vessel, and he recognizes its value. He recognizes what little significance he is in the grand scheme of things. But he also recognizes that as the responsibility has been given to him, if he fails in that regard, the gospel could be hindered. So I'm going to make sure that I follow the very design of the Lord that this gospel treasure is in earthen vessels so that he gets the glory. I'm going to get out of my way, my own way. I'm going to get out of his way. I'm going to make sure that only he receives any glory. And so he says in chapter 4 that he has renounced the hidden things of shame and he adds not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. When an earthen vessel starts to think too much of themselves and starts using craftiness and therefore deceit, mishandling the Word of God, God cannot and will not be glorified. It doesn't matter how great the treasure is. When it's tainted with man's hands, God won't be glorified. We need to understand that. Get out of His way. Get out of the message's way. The ESV renders it tampering with God's Word. We don't do that. The New American Standard Bible says we don't walk in craftiness or adulterate the Word of God. We're not going to alter the message. It is valuable in itself and how it is. We're just going to proclaim it. We're not going to try to please man by changing this message. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4, Paul said, As we have been improved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, in earthen vessels, by the way, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests the hearts. In Galatians 1 and verse 10, he said, Do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? If I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You know, there's plenty of people out there who claim to have a value in the gospel of Christ and be doing God's bidding and preaching the message, but they show that the, va- the gospel is not much valuable to them by the way they handle it. They don't get out of the gospel's way, but they change it and they're doing it not to glorify God, but to please others and glorify themselves. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, Paul says that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's the treasure. And yeah, it it has some difficulties to it, so it has to be endured. They don't value it, so they don't endure sound doctrine. Instead, they keep up for themselves teachers and turn away from the truth and are turned aside to fables. You know how some people do that? Someone tries to bring a message that speaks of God's grace and His loving kindness, and the application is, don't you worry about a thing, because God's grace will cover it. That was happening in the first century. And that's handling God's Word with craftiness. It's adulterating the Word of God. It is certainly not bringing glory to God. In Jude 4, Jude says this, Certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, any message that is masked as the truth, the gospel treasure, that allows men to continue as they are in sin, that allows them to live immoral lifestyles and ignore righteousness and holiness, is not the treasure of the gospel and does not bring glory to God. People have turned the grace of God into lewdness. They're doing the same thing that the Apostle Paul thought was unheard of in Romans 6 and verse 1, saying that we shall continue in sin, that grace may 
abound. It's not our job to make the gospel more inclusive. It's not our job to make it bring in more people and to impress people with its inclusivity, but simply to give the pure message regardless of who would accept it. You know, when I first started preaching in Louisiana, one of the members there started having a problem with my preaching. And and one of the things that came to my attention, someone told me, that I had scared away one of the members of a denomination who had been visiting by the simple message that was being taught. The gospel isn't to attract everyone. It's to attract those who view it as a treasure. It's to attract those who want the truth. If we're the earthen vessels which possess the treasure, let the treasure shine and let God be glorified. Secondly, he says in verse 5 that he does not preach self, but Christ. In Galatians, the sixth chapter, Paul talked about those Judaizing teachers who wanted to make a good showing in the flesh, compelling men to be circumcised. You know what that means? They wanted to look good themselves. They wanted people to see them and the amount of work they were doing in proselytizing people to be Jews. They would look good from that. They were corrupting the gospel to do that. Paul says we're not preaching ourselves. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, in verse 11, in fact, Paul said the way that he preaches does not bring glory to him, but shame and persecution. I, brethren, if I preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? The offense of the cross has ceased. If I was doing this, then I wouldn't be persecuted in this regard. But I'm not doing this to avoid those things. I'm doing this to glorify God. In 2 Corinthians 2, in verse 17, he spoke of some as peddling the word of God. And again, it doesn't always have to be Money. Some people today are preaching, it seems, for pride and popularity, for reputation. They wouldn't preach a message which would make them out with this group over here. They're going to make sure that people like them and they fit in. Far be it from us that we ever do that. Rather, in 1 Thessalonians 2, in verse 5, this is what Paul says, Neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have been uh, made demands as apostles of Christ, but were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And they taught the gospel to them. We get out of the gospel's way when we preach Christ, not ourselves. Thirdly, we manifest the truth, he says. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, so he doesn't tamper with God's word, the ESV says in verse 2. Romans 1 and verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed. Why? Because it's the power of God to salvation. Why would I ever tamper with it or change it or make it sound something like it isn't if I really believe that it and it alone was the power of God to salvation? He encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 8, not to be ashamed of me or the testimony of our Lord, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel's sake. So back in 2 Corinthians 4, rather than catering to the people, He tells Timothy, preach the word. You know what that includes? Verse 2, convince. You bring these people to a consciousness of their guilt. Because that's God's will. You rebuke. When they come to a consciousness of their guilt, you make sure that they know they need to get out of it. And then you exhort them to do so. You don't give them a message which makes them feel comfortable in their sin. You're not ashamed of the truth. It's a treasure to you. So you manifest it unapologetically. We get out of the truth's way. And lastly, what we do as earthen vessels in telling people about this treasure of the gospel 
is we shine the glory of God, His light, in the face of Jesus Christ. This kind of goes hand in hand with not preaching self, but Christ. But I want us to notice something. In Acts the 8th chapter, when Philip is told by the angel to overtake the chariot and to teach this individual, it says that beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. I know you've heard the point, the powerful but simple point, that when he preached Jesus, included in preaching Jesus, was preaching baptism. But I want to tell you that that's just one part of a grander thing. Preaching Jesus includes teaching baptism. It includes teaching the work and worship and organization of the church. It includes teaching the sacrifice of self and turning away of past sin. It includes everything that the pages of the New Testament include. Because Jesus is the Word who was in the beginning with God and was God. John 1 and verse 1. Jesus is the Word that has become flesh. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in Him. The Gospel is who Jesus is in its entirety. If we're wanting to show people Jesus, if we're wanting to give the world a relationship with Jesus, we preach the truth. And it's so that they're not transformed into the world or anything else, but that they're transformed into the image of Christ. Notice there in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, speaking of this ministry of the gospel, he says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What image is that? In verse 6 of chapter 4, it is that image of Christ and in His face being the glory of God. He says then in verse 11, We who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our mortal flesh. What does he mean by that? Jesus is living in him. I may be dying daily, but my conduct is Christ living in me. Which is why he says in verse 16, We don't lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. That's our purpose in preaching the gospel to the world, not so that they become like me or some other man or some other doctrine or creed. They become like Christ. Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 4 and in verse 16, Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And then he says in verse 19, My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now to change my tone, but I have doubts about you. He wanted Christ to be formed in them. Is that what we're doing? Do we value the gospel that much that we're willing to get completely out of its way and let it do its, its work, its job? To make people like Christ, not like what we think they should be, not like what we think we should be, not like what we think would make for a more inclusive environment, but like Christ. You know, Christ was rejected. Christ was spat upon. Christ was looked down upon. But what the gospel is for, and the reason why it's so valuable, is to form Christ in those who read it, have faith in it, and submit to it. And so we offer you an invitation this afternoon to obey that gospel. We're not going to water it down for you. We're not going to act as though the path is easy. We're not going to act as though God wants you to come as you are and stay as you are because He wants you to change tremendously. The only way you do that is the power of the Gospel. 
baptism. You've got to be baptized according to it this afternoon if you haven't already. You cannot be transformed. You cannot grow. You cannot get to heaven without taking that first step. The gospel is the only way. And without submitting to it, you don't have that treasure in the earthen vessel of your body. So you're not being transformed. You don't have hope. We want you to have that hope. It's available this afternoon. Come forward while we stand.